If you have Bibles, you're to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our Masterclass series. As you're turning there, obviously this is a, a very monumental week. I love it, Pastor Tristan. I didn't know he's going to share that about rising uh, to the occasion or rising above. Uh, I believe it's a very prophetic, timely word for the church as a whole right now. This week is a very monumental week in America for, for multiple reasons. Obviously by now you've already seen the commentary on the Roe v. Wade uh, ruling, and I just want to share a little bit just about the importance of that to the church as a, at large. And so I, I got a bunch of notes. I got lots of thoughts on this, but one thing I want you to know about this ruling is it's been 49 years since Roe v. Wade was was ruled. Since then, there's been two major things that have happened that I believe led to an overturning of this ruling. One is this: that science and technology have caught up with biblical principles and values. That we've seen in the last many years that science technology, we saw this in the 80s, that we now know little babies in the womb at 12 weeks old feel pain at 12 weeks in the womb. We know through in utero surgeries that they feel pain. They're viable around 12, 15 weeks. We know lots of things happen thanks to science and technology, and so that has changed. But the biggest thing I think has happened is the power of prayer and intercession, that for the last 49 years, there's been dedicated believers who have believed, who have trusted, who have prayed, who have interceded on the behalf, not just of young unborn babies, but of young mothers that are hopeless and broken on our nation and in general. And so I think it's a monumental time because if we can see how God can move the hand of a nation, how can he move the hand of a church or a community or even your family? And I think it is a time to realize that the outcome of this new ruling is, is monumental because legally it gives states the ability to, to restrict abortions how they want to restrict abortions. It doesn't ban abortions. It doesn't give freedom for abortion. It, it gives states the ability to make decisions on how they want to govern their states and the morality of their states. Why is that important? Because out of the entire world, America is only lumped in with seven or six other nations that have unrestricted abortions based on at-will abortion or choice. Those other nations are China, North Korea, and other basically socialist countries that literally publicly declare they're trying to control the population. And so finally, America's pulled herself out from being clumped up with those other nations to say, okay, we, we got to figure this thing out, but this is not okay. Morally, I believe it puts us in a place for greater blessings from God. I believe socially it, it does some things, but it puts us in a place of incredible, incredible division. One of my favorite pastors, John Tyson, said this. He said, whenever we talk about complex issues, we are dealing with multiple perspectives and layers, often in a single sentence. I Meaning there's so many layers of some of these conversations, but we post one comment on Facebook, we miss the complexity of the conversation. He said there's six layers. There's the public layer, which is the cultural implications. There's the policy, which is the legal implications. There's the principle, which is the Bible framework the pastoral, the loving care for others who it affects, the personal, meaning how I process my perspective, and the prophetic, God's word and truth to power. And love is to discern where people are coming from in their perspective, but maturity is to hold multiple perspectives at the same time. And so it's, it's a very interesting place that we find ourselves at as a nation and as a church because the church has been on the forefront of this. 
And we find ourselves in an incredible time of division, but it's not anything that's abnormal for the church. What has happened is the church has been lulled to sleep through being in a Christian context or culture for the last 200 years. And I hate to tell you this, America is no longer Mayberry. It is no longer a Christian culture. It is a post-postmodern culture where people now look at our beliefs as strange or oppressive or hateful. And so what is happening is we find ourselves in the same spot the New Testament church was as soon as Jesus resurrected and ascended and poured out his Holy Spirit. The New Testament church was, was despised because of their beliefs. They were despised because of their values. They're despised because they were countercultural. They're despised because they worshiped the king instead of the emperor or the politicians. It was a totally different group, and they were despised because of those things. Yet, they were admired because even though they're despised before, because of their beliefs, they were admired because of their love. Here's what Trajan, one of the Roman emperors, said. Or Pliny the Younger said this first. He wrote a letter to Trajan the emperor in search of advice for dealing with Christians. This is in A.D. 112. He described the early church as an economic nuisance, as it had triggered a loss of revenue for the temples that had sold sacrificial animals and other religious merchandise. He called them a political club that took care of the sick, organized community events, buried the impoverished or poor dead, and supported widows and offerings. Instead of offering what other institutions and communities could offer, the church required and provided a distinctly different social and political ethic that contradicted the surrounding culture. The epistle to Diognetus, an early Christian apologetic, said this. It goes back and forth in describing the seemingly contradictory existence of Christians in the world. They dwell in Greek cities. They eat and dress like everyone else. And yet their citizenship confessedly contradicts the expectations. They marry and have children, but do not discard their unwanted infants. In fact, they adopt the unwanted infants of the community around them. We find ourselves in the exact same scenario. People will say, well, you know, Christians are only, only pro-baby. They're not pro-life. They don't really care about, and there's tons of arguments, and I'm not going to discuss this. I just want to say this. I've got a, a few stats. That Christians have been on the forefront of every single equality movement America's ever seen. We were talking, with our, we were riding back from Orlando yesterday, and our, our daughter arrives in the car, and she says, well, I just think you should keep your faith and politics separate. And I said, you can't do that. It, it's who you are. Are. Everyone has beliefs. The homosexual community has beliefs. They bring theirs into the ballot box. Christians have beliefs. Muslims have beliefs. Everyone has beliefs. They're part of who you are. And I said, if we had that same connotation, that same philosophy, we would still have slavery because Christians were the ones that were the first abolitionists. If, if, we, if we did that, then the civil rights movement wouldn't have started because they were started out of the church. Christians have been on the forefront of equality since the founding of America. In the Christian pro-life, there are 3,000 pregnancy centers across the United States that were founded by Christian women, most of them, staffed by Christian women, and funded by churches. 3,000, out of those 3,000, eight in 10 locations offer free ultrasounds. Shoals Save a Life in the Shoals offers free ultrasounds to every single woman, regardless of what their decision's going to be or not. Every 
woman. There's been 486,000 free ultrasounds in the past year alone. 731,000 free pregnancy tests. 967 free consultations, 967,000 free consultations with new clients. 810 locations offer STD testing. 563 locations offer STD treatment. STD treatment on site. 291,000 clients attended parenting classes or parental education classes, and 22,000 clients attended after abortion support and recovery sessions. It's amazing what the Christians have been doing to take care of these women and babies for hundreds of years. And we find ourselves in the same predicament as now. And so, what we need to realize is that people say, well, you need to foster kids. Yes, you should. Without a doubt, the church should be standing in line to try to foster and adopt children. And if you don't believe me, the church is already doing it. It is proven that Christians adopt and foster at two and a half times secular citizens' rates. Even though it's, it's fewer people, at two and a half times, we need to take advantage of the opportunity to not just vote pro-life, but to live pro-life. Me and, me and Tommy Alexander were talking before service. He said, now is not the time to be the loudest voice. Now is the time to be the brightest picture. So instead of talking, instead of posting, instead of commenting, instead of voting, which all those things are fine, what picture are you showing the world of what the kingdom of heaven looks like? What picture do they see when they look at you, when they look at your family, when they look at your social media, what picture are you showing them of what a heavenly father who loves unconditionally looks like? Can we rejoice? Yes, I rejoice in the ruling from Friday. But I'd be very careful about letting your rejoicing turn into boasting. Because here is the opportunities that I, that I see. And I've been thinking about this since it happened on Friday. And I'm thinking through ways of how our church and the Shoals Dream Center can even move farther along in advancing this cause. But here's the three three opportunities I see. One is brokenness. There are going to be broken women who believed abortion was the answer. They were so hopeless that they thought if they have this child, their life is ruined. Their purpose is gone. Their dreams are gone. Their life is gone. Their financial prosperity is gone. They came to a place where they literally thought abortion is the answer. But we need to be the people that can be present in their lives, not separated in the church, preaching, but be present in their lives to show them and tell them and point them to the answer is not abortion, but it's Jesus. Which means there's broken women right now that as we stand here, they still think abortion is the answer and that answer has been taken away from them. It is time for us to give them the true answer. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that is, if that is Housing for single moms. I don't know if that's child care. For, I don't know what that looks like, but it, it is a, a major opportunity for the church to step up. Two is unwanted babies. There'll be babies that are unwanted by their mothers, their fathers, and their families. And just like the New Testament church, we have to be the people that say, if you don't want them, we have a heavenly father who does, and we're going to be his hands and feet here on earth to show them and speak his love, his word, his hope, and his promises into their life. Uh, the foster care system is already broken. It's already backed up. It's going to take an influx of more people to handle an influx of more children. It's time for you to pray and ask God. 
If you have voted Republican for the primary purpose of being pro-life, it is time for you to ask God, is it time for me to foster or adopt? Thirdly, all I see is division. That I don't think is going to get better. Division, our culture will continue to become more polarized over social issues and anger at our values as Christians. But we are called to be peacemakers. We are called to stand on and proclaim his truth, but at the same time demonstrate our faith through love and through action. And that's what I'm going to hit on today. This, this series has taken us right in there. So if your Bibles turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, one of the trademarks of the church is not your doctrine, is not your statement, is not your sign, is not your denomination, is not your theology. One of the trademarks Jesus told the church is that they will know you by your love. It's a, it's a trademark. If you'll throw those trademarks up, trademarks, whenever you see one of these trademarks, MasterCard, you automatically think of 24.7% interest rate on whatever you buy. Google, you automatically think of they control all information for all over the world. McDonald's, you already think of supersize me. Starbucks, you think of really bad coffee at a really expensive cost. Like, like, as soon as you see them, there's a reputation. See, the trademark is the reputation of the product. So when you see the trademark, you automatically align it with a reputation or characteristics of it. Coca-Cola, you think it's the real thing, right? I grew up dirt poor. We didn't have... Coca-Cola in our house. We had hose water, tap water, and Kool-Aid. Can I get an amen? Kool-Aid. I'm talking about once your parents left, you put extra sugar in that joker. Right? So we had, we, every once in a while, we get Bubba Cola, which is a Save-A-Lot save version of Coca-Cola. It was not Coca-Cola. So now I can tell the difference between Coca-Cola and Diet Coke. I can taste the difference between Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Why? Because there's a difference. And what happens is whenever you realize or when you realize that love is the trademark of Christianity, when you taste something that's not authentic, you should be able to see the difference or taste the difference. I can be around some of these, these churches, some of these church people, some of these pastors, some of these preachers for just 10 seconds and realize that's not authentic love. They've exchanged love for power. And what is happening is, if love is the trademark of Christianity, there's a whole lot of knockoff and bootleg versions. They, they have the brand, but the product doesn't align with the trademark. It's like when I was growing up, I told you we were poor. My mom used to go to the flea market. She bought me Jordan t-shirt and shorts. The only problem is I rocked them that school thought I was cool until when I had to shake them off for basketball and on the tag it said fruit of the loom on it. See what happens is there's a whole lot of people that they wear the brand of Christian, they wear the brand of following Jesus, they wear the brand, but once you take off the outer layer you realize it's knockoff version. And what we're seeing in culture is people are starting to identify Jesus with the knockoff bootleg version of Christians. And it's time, as, as, as Tristan said, time to raise the standard. If we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, we actually live and love like Jesus, which is our mission statement. We want to awaken you and empower you to live and love like Jesus. When people see you, 
They should see his love. When they see you, they should see his holiness. When they see you, they should see his opinions, his word flowing out. Love should be the trademark. Not your political affiliation, not how, you, not how you vote, not your doctrine, not your denomination, not your heritage, not your race, not your ethnicity, not your nationality. It should be love. And to be honest, I think we've missed it. If we're all honest, we've probably all missed it. In Jesus' the scripture in Matthew chapter 5, many, many scholars call this the Mount Everest of the Sermon on the Mount. It's this crescendo that's happened. That as you go through the Beatitudes, you go through the first part of Matthew chapter 5, you get to this next spot, which is the Mount Everest, which is the epitome of the kingdom of heaven. And it says this in verse 38. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. The, the New Bobby translation would say, if anyone posts about you, turn off your Facebook and your computer and leave it alone. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Verse 43 says, but you have also heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is an interesting statement because the Pharisees have started preaching that. So they could rally people around hating Rome to enhance their crowds and their congregations. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that, everybody say, so that. That is a major clause. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus literally connects you loving your enemy with your identity as a child of God. You could say that if, if you're not loving your enemy, you may not be a child of the Father. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This, this scripture to the early church would have been absolutely mind-blowing. So Jesus, you're telling me I need to love and serve these Roman soldiers who have taken over our holy city. You're telling me when the Roman soldiers come and make me carry their, their gear, I need to pick up, not just carry it to one mile, to the law, I need to take it two miles? And Jesus says, yeah, if you can't love your enemies, how can you understand how I've loved you? Because you were my father's enemy. And I loved you to the point of salvation. And I think even today, it's in the same context, in a day full of so much division and arguing and hatred and all these things, this scripture should be the watermark for Christianity. It should not be the exception. It should be the rule. I heard Mark Batterson say this, and I love this quote. He says, real love is this, loving people when they least deserve it and they least expect it. 
Loving people when they least deserve it, meaning they don't deserve your love, they don't deserve it, they did something wrong, they're an enemy, they betrayed you, they offended you, they rejected you, they hated you, they despised you, they posted about you, they cut you off in traffic, whatever. They, they don't deserve your love, but two, they don't expect you to give it to them. You know what that type of love does? It changes people. When people experience love when they least deserve it, and when they least expect it, they are changed from the inside out. That is the power of love. And so what I, I just want to give you three points today. And it's going to be love higher, love farther, and love wider. Love higher, love farther, and love wider. I think during this, all this stuff, as, as Pastor Tristan was saying, I think God is bringing reformation to the church. And it's going to be a reformation of love. It's going to be a reformation of love where he's going to change the action of the church to actually align with the life of Jesus. And so we're not called to just love. We're called to love the way God loves, the way he loved us. And there's multiple words for love in Greek in the Bible. I want to give you four real quick. The first one is this, because love is not necessarily love. Love has layers to it. A philosophia love is a love of self. It's self-centered. It's, it's about me and about what I want and what I need. It's about self-love and, and self-care and all these things, which was a place for that. But that's not the love that Jesus is talking about. There's eros love, which is romantic or erotic love, which is between two people and is a give and take. Well, I'm going to give you my love and you're going to give me your love back. Eros love is that romantic type of love. Or, and then the phileo love, which is a deep friendship love, which is built on mutual benefits. But then there's agape love. And agape love is a radical, selfless love that seeks the benefit of others at a cost to yourself. It's agape love. It's radical. It means I'm going to love you, and it's going to cost me something. These words that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5 are all out of the root word agape, agapo which is agape, which means when Jesus says love your enemies, he's saying love them to their benefit and at your cost. We have been trying to love people only to receive a benefit in return. That is not agape love. That is phileo love. And what that is is you only serve people to get something in return. The church is guilty of this. The church says we're going to serve people, but we're going to serve them, and we expect them to come to church. We're going to love them, but we, we expect them to believe like we believe. See, agape love loves and pours out love regardless if love is ever poured back out. And so the point of agape love is it's a supernatural type of love. It doesn't come from human emotion. It doesn't come from human behavior. It comes from the inside, from the spirit of a man. And it only comes through Romans 5 where it says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The only way you can give agape love is to receive agape love. That we love because he first loved us. And so when you receive agape love, the identity, the identifier of the kingdom of heaven is people that give agape love because they received agape love. See, the reason I believe so many Christians lack love is because they've never received God's love. They received a form of religion without love and power. 
Because if you've been loved by God, you can't hold it back. You have to release it because it's a powerful type of love. The agape love is a byproduct of his love. That he loved me even yet when I was a sinner. So it's easy for me to love sinners because he loved me when I was a sinner. I release it to other people. That even when I've betrayed God, he loved me. So therefore, when people betray me, it's easy for me to release that because it's all vertical to horizontal. And the easiest thing about this is when you share agape love, it costs you nothing because it's not your love anyway. It's his. I can give of it freely because I didn't earn it. I didn't buy it. I didn't receive. All I did was receive what he gave me. So if I give it to him, he's going to repurpose and replenish my reserves of love. Actually, I'll say it will cost you something. The only thing that giving away agape love will cost you is your pride. The only thing loving other people is going to cost you is your pride. And so when Jesus is hitting this, I think that's what he, the point he was trying to make. That if you've received his love, it's impossible to be proud. It should humble you because you did nothing to earn it or deserve it. He loved you when you least expected it and least deserved it. So it creates humility to release that to other people. And so just real quick, these three. One is this. Followers of Jesus are expected to love higher. To love higher. He says this. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The thing I hate about this scripture is this. It's giving you a promise. It's not a promise of prosperity. It's not a promise of healing. It's a promise that there are going to be people that offend you, lie about you, hurt you, persecute you, talk bad about you, talk bad about your mama, talk bad about your daddy, talk bad about your football team, talk bad about this. They cut you off in traffic. They persecute your beliefs. They make fun of you. They bully you. It's going to happen. He's literally giving us a promise. But what he's saying is, when they do that, it is an incredible opportunity for them to see what the kingdom of heaven looks like. What he's saying is, don't allow their actions to pull you down into their behaviors. Don't allow their actions to pull you down into their level. What he's saying is, when they try to bring you down, don't stoop down, just go higher. If they slap you, Give them the other cheek. If they talk bad about you, ignore. He's saying it is time for our love to go higher. See, the world, the world, this, this whole Sermon on the Mount is counterculture. The world fights like this. If you're angry at me, I'm going to be angry at you. If you cut me off in traffic, traffic and flick me off, I'm going to cut you back off and flip you off. If you post something about me, I'm going to post something about you. It's all anger for anger. Whatever you do to me, I'm going to do back to you. But the kingdom of heaven is not like that. The kingdom of, hang, of the heaven doesn't fight anger with anger. The kingdom of heaven fights anger with love. Always has, always will. Always has, always will. How, how do you love your enemy? How do you overcome your enemy? How do you overcome somebody who's taking your tunic and your cloak? How do you overcome somebody who slaps you on your cheek and slaps you on your face? How do you overcome somebody who, who does this? Do you refute do you come up with a five-point 
debate with them? Do you come up with, with arguments from, from religious leaders? Do you come up with, with therapy? What, what, how do you overcome that? You overcome evil with love. You overwhelm them with love. I don't know when we started thinking that you overwhelm people with political debates. I don't know when we started thinking you overwhelm people with arguing. I don't know when we thought you overwhelm people with social media. The only thing that overwhelms people is love when they least deserve it and they least expect it. The only thing. It's, it's God's weapon of choice. It's not, we watched Top Gun again for the, the second time. And me and RJ were talking a couple weeks ago about, you know, machine guns and this and that. Look, machine guns have a purpose. They're, they're suppression fire. Rifles are strategic fire. The Air Force clears the way, the ground. I'm talking about all these different weapons and how they function in military strategy. But do you realize that when the world fights, they fight through talking bad about you? talk bad about persecuting your beliefs. They talk bad about making you feel like you're a bigot or hateful for standing on the promise of God. Have you ever thought about the people that yell and scream at the church for being intolerant are the people that are the most intolerant? Have you ever thought about the people that scream at the church saying it's hateful, even though they're adopting babies at two and a half times the rate of everybody else, are the same people that are hateful? Are the same people that spray-painted Matchhead Coffee, which is Radiant Kalamazoo's coffee shop in the middle of downtown Kalamazoo, with abort God on the door? See, if you don't bow down, they're going to persecute you. But you don't overwhelm them with reverse persecution. You don't overwhelm them with bigotry. You don't overwhelm them with debate. You don't overwhelm them with political strategy. You overwhelm them with love. It's the only way. I remember when I first moved here, uh, one of the leaders in the church has now passed away. First meeting, he came into my office. He said, when are you going to preach about these gays? I was like, what? I'm not. He's like, what are you going to preach against? And I'm like, whoa. I was like, we, we don't preach against anybody. We preach the gospel. And if the shoe fits, you wear it. We preach for Jesus, holiness. We preach against sin. We don't preach against anybody. He says, it's different with, with these gays. They're going to march people down there to try to get them married in front of the church. I said, little, little, little. I mean, stop. I said, do you know what's happening right now? What is happening is there's been people in the church who instead of exercising love because that was too difficult for them, they started exercising political power because that was easier and it neglected them of the responsibility to actually do what Jesus told them to do. And for 50 years, they've been pushing people who deal with homosexuality into a corner and finally they're starting to fight back. And the way to fight off that agenda is not through political strategy, it's through a love that overwhelms them from heaven through me to them to change them from the inside out. That is a higher form of love. Paul says like this in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love this scripture. I, I love, Toys calls me an antagonist. When people I know don't like me, I love going out of my way at Walmart. What's up, bro? 
how you doing, man? Like, missed you? Like, I love it. Like, I, I love the fact that somebody, just because somebody has a problem with me doesn't mean I got a problem with them. Just because I'm an enemy to somebody else doesn't mean they're my enemy. What it means is they're giving me an opportunity to display if I'm following Jesus or I'm following myself. I, I love that. Jesus, in the garden after he's betrayed by Judas, Peter cuts off the servant's ear. Jesus could have been like, yeah, Peter, that's what's up. That's the way to defend truth and defend the principles. No, Jesus said, Peter, oh, if you live by that, you're going to die by that. And he heals this servant on the spot. I can't help but want to think, one, if you live by Facebook, you're going to die by Facebook. If you live by politics, you're going to die by politics. But two, that servant who cut off the ear, or Peter cut off his ear, and Jesus healed his ear on the spot, I can't help but believe that's probably the first Christian to ever walk the earth. Because he saw unconditional, overwhelming love in Jesus before anybody else. I love it with Dr. Martin Luther King, one of my favorite, favorite historical figures, who time and time again had people hate him because of the color of his skin, because of his politics, because of his beliefs, because of all this stuff. He never responded with them being my enemy. He never responded with violence, even though he was violently attacked. He never responded with bigotry, even though people were bigots towards him. He overcame by and through a higher level of love. Michelle Obama said, when they go low, we go high. In the kingdom of heaven, when they go low, we just go higher. But number two is as followers of Jesus, we're expected to love farther. We're expected to love farther. Jesus says it this way. He says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile with him, go two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And what he's saying was there was a law that Rome had, had implemented in Jerusalem that if Roman soldiers got tired, they could take off their gear, take off their sword, take off their shield, take off their helmet, and set it down. And Jews would have to pick it up and carry it for one mile. So that's the law. So they hate it. You know what an inconvenience that is if you're trying to go to Chick-fil-A with your family? And one of the Florence PD pulls you over and says, whoa, whoa, I need you to carry my stuff a whole nother mile. Like, bro, like we're about to, it's going to close at night. You don't know how angry Toya gets if she doesn't get her Chick-fil-A. It was an inconvenience. And Jesus says, okay, not just do that, but go a whole other mile. See, they expect the one mile, but it's not love until you exceed their expectations. See, that's a whole nother type of, that's a love that goes farther. See, real love is going to inconvenience you. Not just your family schedules, but this is people outside the family. Jesus says you're expected to exceed the expectations of culture and love to a deeper, farther level. See, it's love when it's convenient, but it's not really God's love till it becomes inconvenient. See, love stops at one mile, but agape love goes the extra mile. And there's times when you love and you love and you love and you get tired, but it doesn't become God's love until your body is tired of loving. His love takes over. His love pushes on. See, there's people in your life that you stopped at the first mile. And it is time for you to pick up and go the extra mile. 
There's people that expected one thing and you gave them their expectations, but now it's time for you to meet their expectations and exceed their expectations with agape type of love. I'll be honest. There's people in my life that I feel like I gave up on too early. Well, there's people I wish, looking back, me and Toy have talked about this. There's people in my life I wish that I could have, I could go back and, and go farther. Love them more. Walk with them farther. There's people. There's also people that I've walked with over one mile and two mile and three mile and four mile. And I didn't see the fruit of what I expected to see. But you know what I'll never do? I don't regret it. Even there's, there's one young man. He's in the youth ministry in the church in, in North Nashville where we're at. He's in our young adult ministry. I watched this young man go from being called to ministry, to being a power lifter, to being a bodybuilder, to being a rapper. I've watched him go through all the cycles. He is far away from God. He is literally partying with Jake and Logan Paul. So if you're under the age of 12, you probably know who that is. But they're the premier party social media influencers. He is literally hanging out with the Pauls. He reached out to me on Instagram about three or four months ago, maybe six months ago now. I'm getting old, everything seems like it was yesterday. Reached out to me and just said, hey, man, how are you and the family doing? Man, you've been an influence in my life. Reached back out. You know why that is? Because I'm one of the few people that walked the extra mile with him. I've not seen the fruit of it, but I'm believing that as I've walked with him, that at some point he's going to realize the purpose and plan God has on his life, and he's going to receive it, and he's going to duplicate it in all those environments he's in. So the question for you would be, maybe it's time for you to love farther who have you given up on? And you can go the extra mile. Who is it? Number three is this. Followers of Jesus, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, are expected to love wider. Jesus says it this way, talking about loving your enemies. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He said, you're going to have enemies. And Dr. Kendall, I added another one. But Dr. Kendall said there's four enemies. One is your flesh. That your flesh has desires, has pride, has issues, has a personality, has political ideologies, has philosophical ideologies, has sports ideology. It has all this stuff. And so when your flesh gets provoked, it forms enemies. If we're really honest, most of the enemies most of us have in this room are probably fleshly enemies. They're people we have a disagreement with based off our, our fallen nature side, our, our fleshly side. And we allow that to build this tension to cross enemies. The second level, I think they put it up there, second level is haters. Everybody say haters. That is people that are your enemy because God has blessed you and used you. You may not, they may not even be your enemy, but you're their enemy just because they're jealous of what God has done in you. They're jealous. We, we talk about those as our kids. They, they, have, they have people in their sphere of influence that, that I don't want to say bully, but 
fight with them, divide them, all that kind of stuff because our kids have a mom and dad that are still married. Our kids live in a, in a, a good middle-class lifestyle. Our kids have values. Our kids have these things. Their kids have act. They have all these things. And what happens is when kids don't have that, they don't know how to voice that, they just get angry at the kids that do have that. It's the same way in adulthood. When you have things that God has given you and blessed you with, other people don't like that. But just because they're jealous of you doesn't mean you have to hate them. And then the devil, that he will literally, the enemy will literally bring people into your life as enemies to provoke you to sin. You see what Paul tells Timothy. I said, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. He's done me great harm. He talks about a thorn in the flesh. He talks about all what it is. The enemy will bring people in your path, in your circle, in your group, in your social media, just to provoke you to sin. But the last one I think is interesting is God himself will bring enemies along your path. You say, well, why is that? Well, he says in the scripture that you need to love your enemies so that way you get a reward. I believe God will bring enemies along your path, people that disagree with you, people that maybe you have differences with, people that may have different political views, different social views, all these different views, just to test to see if you have agape love or not. I think he'll do it to test you to see if he can bless you. And if we are honest, a lot of us aren't passing the test. Since you got to love your enemies, he said, you know, you, you say love your friends and your family, but hate your enemies. What he's saying is, if the only people you can love are the people in your house, you miss the whole point of the gospel. If your circle is only people that look like you, talk like you, sound like you, identify like you, or racially like you, or politically like you, then you miss the point of agape type of love. Jesus is literally telling the disciples to widen their love beyond their family, beyond just the people they like, just beyond the people they have things in common with, to widen it. And what's crazy is Jesus didn't just say this, he lived it. Jesus sat with and loved tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, Roman soldiers, rich people, poor people, Samaritans, Gentiles, Jews, people that mocked him, people that rejected him, people that crucified him. Jesus literally widened his circle across the entire universe. So it's not like it's just something he says, but he didn't do. Jesus demonstrated this agape love by saying, my circle is so wide, there is no one that doesn't fit. But when you come in my circle, my love is going to transform you from a tax collector to a disciple. My love is going to transform you from a prostitute to a follower of Jesus. My love is going to transform you. See, we have to become people that widen our circle. Because we do not get to choose who we love. We are called to love everybody. And the moment you think you can choose who you love is the moment you think you can eat off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and get away with it. That means you don't get to choose who you love. You're called to love Republicans and Democrats. You're called to love Southerners and sometimes even Northerners who say pop. You're called to love Auburn fans and Alabama fans. 
You're called to love rich people and poor people, black and white, immigrant and refugee, foster kids, orphans, politicians, soldiers, enemies. You're called to love the woman who's just had an abortion. You're called the woman, the person who's protesting thinking they should still have abortion. We are called to love everybody with the agape type of love that serves them from the inside out to transform them. We have to get this. As both followers of Jesus, we should be loving higher, farther and wider than anybody else. You know, one of the, the sad, I'm about to close, one of the sad things, man, me and Jimmy Hayes at the Dream Center have been talking about is the liberal churches that we would call liberal that, that are culturally farther out there than, than, than we are seem like they're much better at loving people than the fundamental churches. Which tells me there's a, a cognitive dissonance between what we believe and what we do. And we need to close that gap because the world is watching to see if you vote like a Christian or you're actually a Christian. The world is watching to see if you're going to be provoked to anger or you're going to be provoked to love. And I believe we in this church, we're going to be people of love. So the question would be, this week, who can you love higher? Maybe they've betrayed you. Maybe they've they slapped you on your cheek. Maybe they betrayed you. Maybe they rejected you. Maybe they offended you. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe they abused you. How can you love them higher? How can you reach out to them and say, I love you? Who can you love at a farther level? Maybe it's somebody you've given up with or given up on. Maybe it's somebody that you were trying to share the gospel with and you gave up. Maybe it's somebody that, that you just got tired of their drama and you just stopped and you gave up. How can you go the extra mile with them? And the third one would be, maybe you can love wider. Maybe your circle is only people that look like you and act like you. And maybe it's time you get to be a little bit more like Jesus and invite some people into your circle so that you can see the love of God transform them through your agape love. That, that is my prayer, is that we raise the standard of love in our individual lives, in our church's lives, and we see that impact the culture around us to see God bring revival and reformation to his church. If you would just bow your heads and close your eyes just for one second. I know it's been, a, a, for some, a heavy week, maybe a joyful week, maybe a broken week. And as a church, it should sadden us that people identify us with our political beliefs more than with our agape love. And it should challenge us and motivate us to love higher than we've ever loved before, to love farther than we've ever loved before, and to love wider than we ever loved before. It's so right now with, with everyone in the room, this is, this is my prayer. Heavenly Father, the Apostle John said that you are love. We thank you that your DNA is in us. Your identity is in us. Your love 
that is unconditional is in us. It's been poured into our hearts through your Holy Spirit, as Paul said in Romans 5. And Father, I just pray for our breaking of the vessel. As Mary anointed the feet of Jesus, the vessel was broken. The outer shell was broken. The the hard exterior was broken. The vase was broken. The humanity was broken so the contents could be poured out on the feet of Jesus. Father, I'm praying for every single person in this room and online for the outer hard shell of our lives to be broken, for our hardness of heart to be broken, for our convenience to be broken, for our humanity to be broken, for our flesh to be broken, for our philosophies to be broken, so that the contents of Jesus can be poured out on those around us. Agape love could flow through the brokenness into those around us. Father, right now we're praying. One, we, we, we rejoice with this ruling, Father, to protect the lives of these unborn babies, given these 63 million babies that have been lost in these last 50 years, given a new 63 million a hope and a purpose in you to find their imago day in you. Father, we also pray for those who feel like their choices have been limited. Father, we pray they find solutions not in abortion, not in political theory, not in political strategy, not in, in protest, but Father, they find the solution in you and in you alone. Father, I pray for broken women everywhere. And Father, this is not an attack on their femininity. Father, it's not an attack on their empowerment. Father, they can find their empowerment through their identity in you. They can find their empowerment. Father, I'm praying for women everywhere who are dealing with sexual abuse and rape and frustration. Father, I'm finding and I'm praying that in you, internal, eternal healing takes place. Father, I'm praying for the church to rise up and be peacemakers and not dividers. I'm praying for your church to rise up with agape type of love, to compel and overwhelm people through a picture of the kingdom of heaven. Father, I'm praying for foster kids and orphans. Father, I thank you for the people in this church that have fostered Carol Kelly, Father, the Klingons, the Walkers, and all those that I'm missing, Father, that have have reached out, the Sanja Kroon, Father, that have given their lives to foster and adopt. Father, I'm praying for a whole generation of people to step up so foster homes and foster care is empty of any children. Orphanages are empty of any children. The Father, your church steps up and plays the role of father and mother to those who are hopeless and unwanted. Father, but above all, I pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name.